Indeed, we just sang Psalm 21. We're going to, in a moment or two, read Psalm 21, and for the next few minutes, we are going to explore Psalm 21 and hear what God has to say to us, to His people, through His Word. As we turn to His Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer, asking for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Indeed, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you have provided your word and spirit to guide us on that long journey home, that journey which is full of difficulty, but also joy, sorrows as well as rejoicing. Father, as we turn to your word, may your word be our rule, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you haven't already done so, please do turn in your Bibles to Psalm 21. Psalm 21, we are at uh, number 21 in a summer psalm series seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. And we've seen that uh, the psalms in particular are helpful for corporate worship for God's people, but they're helpful for family worship individual worship as well. Not only worship on the Lord's day, but worship in all of life. Back in the late 1980s, 1990s, I was serving in the U.S. Navy and I was overseas uh, in the Persian Gulf, the Indian Ocean, and uh, we would um, love mail call because mail call brought um, things um, from home, uh, letters, uh, care packages, but we also loved uh, going into port because we could um, buy things. I think some of you know what that's like. Uh, it was great to be in a foreign country. And one of the things that I did at the time was I, I bought uh, very cheap cassette tapes. Okay, Picture that, a cassette tape, if anybody remembers those. And I remember some of my uh, fellow officers, some of the uh, guys in my division uh, liked country music. Now, I wasn't... Uh, up with country music, uh, but they introduced me to something that was called contemporary country music, not classic country music, but contemporary country music. And I remember listening to this artist by the name of Garth Brooks, and some of you may have heard of Garth Brooks, you might not have ever heard him in a sermon, but uh, today you will, Um, because he had a song, I think it was a 1990 song, um, and it goes like this, and here's the refrain, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Well, uh, his uh, doctrine, his his theology, his his doctrine of God as the man upstairs is a little bit off. And his doctrine of, of prayer, his understanding of prayer from a biblical perspective is not So great, but I do think I understand what he's trying to say. Because sometimes it really is God's blessing not to get what we ask for. Especially as James reminds us in James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Remember to, to spend what you get on your pleasures. And then James goes off to talk about friendship with the world and friendship with God, and they can't coexist. 
So Garth Brooks led a number of us to have in our unconscious thinking, yes, thank God for unanswered prayer, for not giving us what we may at one time may have wanted. However, as I believe we will see in Psalm 21 today, that answered prayer, answered prayer is a great blessing. And our, our recognition of God's answer to our prayer is a great gift that gives us reason, reasons to declare as we respond in singing, as we will respond in singing after the sermon, that God is, and it's going to be a change to the hymn of response, that God is our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. So, the recognition that God answers prayer is going to give us a reason to give thanks for what God has done in the past, what He's doing in the present, and what He will do in the future. Now last week we saw in Psalm 20 uh, a psalm that's best seen as a prayer, asking God. And if that's the case, Psalm 21 is best seen as a song giving thanks. A song giving thanks. Now let's uh, have a few words about Psalm 21. It's another royal psalm. Uh, we compare that to Psalm 2 that's quoted, Psalm 110 that's quoted often in the New Testament. But as we saw last week, Psalms 20 and 21 are a pair. There's prayer in Psalm 20 and there's praise in Psalm 21. And many commentators, scholars, theologians believe that Psalms 21, 20 and 21 are connected uh, Maybe not historically per se, talking about the same exact thing, but definitely thematically, as if they are two panels joined by a common hinge. And in fact, it would be almost wrong to not follow up Psalm 20 with Psalm 21. We need to read those together because the Psalm 20 was on the day of trouble, and we were asking God today. In Psalm 21, it's a day of rejoicing. God is answering and we are thanking. You noticed from last week, you may remember that uh, these two Psalms, 20 and 21, are more corporate. There's the, the plural pronouns being used. There's the we, where Psalm 19 ends with my. And Psalm uh, 22 will begin with my. Psalms 20 and 21 are especially for the people of God, to pray and sing together. Indeed, last week we mentioned, and it's worth mentioning again, that the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer that was first brought out in 1662, it, it has prayers for various occasions, uh, orders of words for various occasions. And there's a prayer in the time of war and tumult. So we saw where Psalm 20 might be uh, that occasion. There's war and there's tumults. But Psalm 21 is for this prayer, for peace and deliverance from our enemies. So here we have, as it were, two prayers, two songs, uh, both asking and giving thanks. Now, you may recall, for those of you that were here last week, that we saw how Psalm 20 helped us read the Bible, especially the Old Testament correctly as a completed book with one message. And we approached Psalm 20 last week with the title Confidence in Prayer 
by considering three horizons, the Old Testament historical situation or context, the New Testament fulfillment in Christ, and finally the present day application. Now we're not going to look at Psalm 21 with those horizons directly in mind, but of course we are reading Psalm 21 through Christian lenses. Christ has come. The fulfillment of this psalm has occurred. And so we're going to look at it from the, from the entire perspective of the Scriptures. We will read and unpack and explore Psalm 21 with that in mind, seeing the psalm as both promise and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But our approach today in Psalm 21 will be through three dimensions of time. Children, how are you doing with your verbs these days, right? What kind of verbs are there in terms of tenses? What are they? Real simple, what are they? Past, present, and future. Right, past, present, future. Past, present, future. That's our approach to Psalm 21 today through three dimensions of time. Now, we don't, either, we don't live in either the past, and we don't certainly live in the future. We live in the present. However, our life in the here and now is informed and influenced by both looking back and looking ahead. Our head has to be on a swivel. Those men who I know who have been in combat, where there's really no front line and no rear area, they have to have their head on a swivel. And a Christian also, in a way, has to have their head on a swivel, looking back to what has already happened, looking ahead to what will happen. Our head is on a swivel as we look behind us and as we look ahead of us. Because we live by faith and not by sight in the in-between times, between the already and the not yet. We live between the already and the not yet. Join with me as I read Psalm 21. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. 
So again, our approach to the text this morning will be to look at the psalm from the perspective of first the present, then the past, and finally the future. So we're going to start off with the present, then go back to the past, and then go ahead to the future. First, the present is a time of rejoicing and trust. And we see that predominantly in verses 1 and 8. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. And then again in verse, um, excuse me, uh, not verse, um, yeah, verse Eight, excuse me, verse 7, excuse me. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Rejoicing and exultation. Notice the object, the focus. The king has won a victory. The Lord has been with him. The people have prayed, and he is not rejoicing in his own ability and his power. He is not looking inward. The people are recognizing That the king has won because of the Lord's aid, the Lord's help. He is rejoicing, they say, in the Lord's strength and exulting in his salvation. Again in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 7, the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The king is rejoicing at present, and the king is trusting in the present. And as we've seen, As the king goes, so goes the people. And because the king is trusting, the king is rejoicing, the people are joining him. Look again at verse 7. The king trusts in the Lord. Remember what we saw in chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's picking back up on that theme of trust. So verse 7 ends that because of this trust and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Why is the king not moved? Why is the king not shaken? Because he is trusting in the steadfast love of the Lord. Those of you that are familiar, especially with the Old Testament Scriptures, notice that this word steadfast love occurs over and over and over again. It's coming from the Hebrew word hesed, which is hard to translate in English because you think of it could be faithfulness, mercy, steadfast love, uh, unfailing love. It's trying to capture God's covenant love, His faithful love that we heard in God's covenant with David the king. The king has received the outworking of the Lord's strength And he is a recipient of the Lord's steadfast love. He is both, interestingly, moved in that he rejoices. And he is not moved because he was not overcome by enemies. What is the king doing? At present, he is rejoicing. Why? Why is the king rejoicing? Because of the past. And so now let's look at verses 2 through 6 as we see a record of the Lord's salvation, a record of His rescue and deliverance. Now these verses, even beginning with 1 up to verse 7, is addressed to the Lord about the King. 
And remember from last week, the king is representing the people. As the king goes, so goes the people. This psalm assumes that the king of Israel, David and those who come after him, will be pious. They will be faithful. And the king was called to lead God's people in obedience to the Lord. And we see that through uh, the historical books of the, the king's either faithfulness to the Lord or the king's unfaithfulness to the Lord. But here we see the king has been faithful to follow the Lord and the Lord has given him victory and the nation victory. Look with me at a few things. Look at verse uh, 2. You have given him, that is the king, his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Go back to Psalm 20. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Here it is, a prayer and an answer. It's a celebration of the military successes that have been prayed for. You see all of these going into verse 3, you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head, not so much his coronation, but the king returns from battle and he he sits back down as less as a chief of staff of the army and more the king. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. The people as they look back to the past. This record of God's rescue and deliverance of salvation. What are they doing? They're giving thanks. They're giving thanks. Um, it's interesting that I think most of us recognize when life gets tough, right? Everybody prays. I mean, how, how often? It's every day. There's some tragedy in the nation, some death, some expected thing. And what goes out, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. You, you hear news stories of people rescued from caves and mines and, and you hear people say, well, all we could do was pray. Even the unbeliever has that reflex that cannot be suppressed to pray. And so Psalm 21, excuse me, Psalm 20 in this preparation for battle, people prayed. But notice after the battle, after the victory in Psalm 21, what are people doing? They're praying. They're giving thanks they're giving thanks. Um, so I think there's a lot of prayer in desperation. But let me ask us this. Is there prayer in deliverance? Right? Remember Jesus when he was, during the time of his earthly ministry, encountered ten lepers? Right? Ten lepers. And did Jesus respond to their need? Yes. He healed them. But what was interesting about that story in Luke 17? How many returned to Jesus? How many came back to do what? To say thanks. How many? One. One returned and gave thanks. You know, Paul in Romans 1, when he's talking about the suppression of truth and unrighteousness and the exchange of truth for a lie, which sounds like Paul is talking about 2018, is he not? Paul says... That a birthmark of a believer is giving thanks. Because the unbeliever neither honors God as God, 
nor gives thanks. So just let's ask ourselves this. Yes, is it important to pray in a great time of need? Absolutely. We're confessing our weakness and confessing God's strength, confessing our need and and confessing his provision. Absolutely. But are we also as ready to pray after the fact, after the deliverance? I think that's why our children's catechism, what, what is prayer? Prayer is praising God, giving thanks for all his blessings and asking him for the things he has promised in the Bible. We need it both. And you see that in, in chapters 20 and 21. It's interesting. We know our confession of faith speaks of repenting of particular sins. What? Particularly, right? It's not so much, oh God, I am sinful And I've done all this. No, repent of specific things, specifically. But the same could go for this. Here they are giving thanks particularly for particular blessings. Just read over what they are thankful for, what they are grateful for. The king is not only rejoicing, and we see that in verse 1. He is also trusting, and we see that in verse 7. Of what he is confident He and the people are confident that just as the Lord saved and delivered them in the past, He will also save and deliver them in the future. Because when we realize what God has done for us in the past, we respond with what? Thanksgiving and gratitude. But not only that, we go forward and respond with confidence about the future. Because here in Psalm 21, we're going to see a shift now from the past to the future, beginning in verse 8 through the end, a promise of the Lord's salvation, His deliverance. And before, in looking at the past, there was thanksgiving, and now looking toward the future, there is confidence. And if you were paying attention as we sang Psalm 21, if you paid attention as we just read Psalm 21, you will see that future deliverance is through destruction. Did that get your attention as you were reading and singing Psalm 21? Um, I think most of us would look at this first part of Psalm 21, 1 through 7. Hey, what good news, what God has done. And some people might look at this. Oh my goodness, look at the language here. You're, you're going to find out your enemies. You're going to use your right hand. You're going to swallow them up. You're going to consume them, destroy them. They plan evil against you, but they won't succeed because you'll put them to flight. You will aim, as it were, your bow at them and let the arrows fly. What is going on? And notice how future this is. Look, at least seven times you will You will, you will. Before in the psalm, it was you have done this, you have done this, you have done this. Now it's you will, you will, you will at least seven times. I want us to draw our attention to verse 8. There's a couple of you wills here. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Earlier we looked at Psalm 19 and we we saw that image of the sun racing across the sky. And the sun both warms and it's got an allusion to probable judgment. It, nothing is hidden from the sun. 
And here's another reminder, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Here, it's speaking, of course, of the, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of, of, of David and the, the, uh, the kings. But of course, the enemy of God's people is God's enemy. And it's speaking primarily, as we will see, it's, it's going to build up to the coming king, Jesus. Nothing is hidden. God's right hand will find out. Because right now on earth, there's probably a lot of people, even in this post-Christian day and age that we live, a lot of people, if push comes to shove, they'll say, hey, I believe. You know, I, I still believe there's a God. I, I still trust in Jesus. But it says God will find out who's really his, who are his friends and who are his enemies. So in these verses 8 through 12, you see this this war, this campaign against the enemies of God and God's people. You see this kingdom, as it were, advancing. I want us to be reminded that in our shorter catechism, as it unfolds and exposits the Lord's Prayer, it asks the question, what is the the second petition of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And it says this, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that kingdoms, excuse me, Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Did you hear that? The advancement of the kingdom of grace as it moves toward the kingdom of glory requires the destruction of Satan's kingdom. And as the gospel goes forward, as men and women, boys and girls are brought to faith in Jesus Christ, yes, Satan's kingdom is destroyed as the gospel advances. Look with me at verse 13. The psalm ends with this. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Back to the present, as it were, with a look to the future. There's the promise of final triumph. The king rejoices in verse 1. And then in verse 13, it's the king and the people rejoice. They are singing and praising the Lord's strength, the Lord's power. Here, as this psalm ends, man, as it were, is out of sight. Though he's not unheard, man is singing. Because man's part here is to stand aside, to admire the work of the Lord, and to give thanks, both then and and now. Now, as we draw to a conclusion, uh, we need to remember at least two things. First, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 21. He is the King. Because look with me at the language. He asked life of you. You gave it to him length of days forever and ever. Well, King David died. The kings that came after him died. Uh, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. 
You make him most blessed forever. And you make him glad with the joy of your presence. Again, the language describing the king here, as it were, burst its own banks. Because the king is described as living forever and ever. And he receives splendor and bliss that is unending. Now we might think this is exaggeration or hyperbole. You know, some of us are given to exaggerate, to, to um, basically fudge with the truth to make a point, aren't we? To go over and beyond. But here, these things we know are true of Jesus, the ultimate king without exaggeration. Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Think about this, that Jesus is the king of which scriptures look forward to. And as our shorter catechism says about Jesus being the king, he executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Do you see it? The enemy of God's people and the enemy of God are one in the same. And Jesus finds us, seeks us, rules us, defends us, all the while restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, just as King David and the other kings did, but in a much more ultimate, final sense. Look with me at verse 3. For you made him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. And my friends, we have intimacy with God in the presence of God through this final king. He is, as we sang earlier, the everlasting king who gives the blessings he earned to the people he saves. So first, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 21. Indeed, Jesus, as he sang this psalm, would most likely know that it's speaking of Him. But second, because Jesus is the King, the fulfillment, the the ultimate King, we live under His rule in the present. In that time between the past and the future, between the already and the not yet, every week we say, a confession of faith together. We confess corporately, whether it's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the uh, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism. One of the early church creeds was this, Jesus is Lord. We even see that all in the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. But another early church confession was this, Christ has died, Christ is risen Christ will come again. With that in mind, John Stott in his commentary on Titus chapter 2 says this, quote, The best way to live now, that would be in the present, is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. We need to look back and remember and we need to look forward and anticipate. And we see that look in Psalm 21. Indeed, we are to look back at Christ's first coming for us and our salvation and give thanks. And we are to look forward to His second coming, His return, when He will make all things new, when He will wipe away every tear 
when there will be no more death nor sorrow. That day is coming. And there is, because of that, there is strength and stability in our lives here and now as we rejoice, not in our own strength, but we rejoice in the strength of the Lord and as we trust in His steadfast love. My friends, Psalm 21 is a song of God's people giving thanks for answered prayer. Let us indeed give thanks to God for answered prayers, answers that are found always and only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this record, this historical record in the form of a song about your deliverance of your people. Indeed, Father, may we, as we look ahead, back to the past, we, may we be filled with thanksgiving. And may, as we look ahead, face the future with confidence, knowing that you can be trusted, that your steadfast love is indeed what it is, steadfast. And that as we live in light of your faithfulness, your steadfast love in your strength, we will not be moved. And Father, we thank you for Jesus who was indeed not moved when it came to going to the cross in our place and our behalf. And yet, the gravestone was removed and he emerged triumphant from the grave. He has ascended to your right hand and we can be assured of his return to finish what he has begun. Father, help us to have the strength and the stability that rest in Christ alone. Amen.